Howdy, I'm Ben Crockett with 451 Now, and I'm joined by Will Witt. Will Witt is a national speaker. He is the host of Will Witt Live for PragerU, and he's the author of today's book, How to Win Friends and Influence Enemies. Will, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks, boss. Appreciate it. So, I mean, before we get into all of the incredibly, you know, uh, difficult and complicated policy questions uh, about your book and about the positions you take, we have to know, how do you do your hair? Listen, man, the hair is all natural. This just happens. All right. You get out of the shower, you put it up and it just goes, you know, you don't need all this fancy product, all these things. It just, that's just how it goes, man. I guess I was blessed for that. You're kind of famous for this man on the street journalism style that you do. And, and I kind of want to uh, get you to explain your strategy. How do you go about leading people from their, their, you know, preconceptions about, you know, racism and about COVID-19 and about police brutality? And how do you get them to go to a more re reasoned, nuanced, conservative position? How do you ask those questions? How do you formulate them? How do you lead a leftist on to the conservative position? You know, one of the most important things is actually knowing what you're talking about. And so when you're having a discussion with someone, like let's say I'm when I was at Cal State LA and I'm talking to people about socialism. And before I can even start to discuss and say, you know, here's why socialism is wrong, it's like I have to ask them, what is socialism? I think a lot of people are starting having debates with people or talking to people without having the proper definitions for a lot of the words and the things that they are actually talking about. So that is the first thing. Make sure that you are both on the same place when you are deciding what it actually is that you're talking about. The second thing is lots of people, when I finish my interviews, they don't even know that I'm conservative. I was just able to talk my points and ask them questions that open up their mind, just using the facts and, and, and persuasion tools that I know how to do, right? So it's not like you need to be going out there with a MAGA hat on and, and a Trump 2020 shirt and telling everyone what you believe for them to you know, know what you believe in. You can do it just by asking questions. And that's truly the most important thing is that you practice doing this. It's, it's, it doesn't come easy at first, for sure. I, I took a lot of practice to, to be able to do what I do now. But you have to be able to weave the facts that you want to get across into your questions. If you can do that, then you are then putting them on the defensive. Instead of having them be offensive, where they're coming at you trying to, to tell you, oh, here's what they believe about this and this and this and giving them points to rebuttal. No, you are the one controlling the conversation because you are asking the questions and you are instituting facts inside of them. And because of that, they're going to be able to have their mind changed. It, it just doesn't work the other way, it, especially in the political climate that we have now with everyone basically having confirmation bias with everything they see and social media working with the algorithms to make sure that you only see stuff that you agree with. It really is about the questions. First topic of your book, racism. You say, Calling Aunt Jemima syrup racist doesn't help black people. What's the single greatest factor hurting black people? Well, it has to be fatherlessness. I mean, that's number one. I mean, when you look at societies across the globe and when you have people who do not have strong family units, th they fail, right? Countries that have stronger family units obviously do much better. China right now, I mean, they have a strong aging population and they don't have a great family structure, a great family incentive for a lot of people to stay together. Now contrast that to somewhere like Hungary, Hungary is a country where they have a department of families within their, their government, you know, something that is like unimaginable here. They, if you have four kids, you basically get a free car from the government. They have great child tax and tax credits uh, for having more children in a place like Hungary, you know, and people in, in places like that are doing well. They are doing well in places like this. But when you have a government that comes in and gives free stuff to people and says, you don't need to actually stay with your kids. You don't need to stay with the woman who you knocked up. 
you are going to have a generation of people who don't have role models and then also don't know how to live inside the world. That's, that's really the biggest problem because when you don't have fathers, it really stems into every other problem. It makes it so that hip hop culture and these types of things are really rampant in their communities and they don't value hard work. And then they don't uh, actually look to get themselves out of the situations they're in. They just see how they can benefit off of someone else giving them something. And that's not just, you know, a black problem. That's a, a, a every American problem who doesn't have this family unit. That's why we have young Americans who feel so entitled today more now than ever before. Well, well, how would you respond to the, the claim that the reason why there's a fatherless problem in the African-American community in particular is, is because of the legacy of slavery? Well, slavery, the, the, the wealth created from slavery was destroyed after the Civil War with, uh, with how the, the South actually responded with their money and, and everything that was destroyed in the, in the crisis. But it, for people to think that it was because of slavery is pseudo history. It's like people coming and saying the 1619 Project is when America started. It is basically the exact same thing. In no way, shape or form is it because that something happened 150 years ago. If you are able to now in America go and do whatever you want, you can be the president of the United States if you are black. Okay, We have Barack Obama for two terms a black president. If you are able to go and do that, it's hard to imagine in a world where slavery is really holding these people back from something that happened 150 years ago. The fatherlessness comes from the government incentives. It comes from these acts, especially Lyndon B. Johnson and, and going back even further, where blacks in this country were doing better than white people in many respects. And now what do you have? You have blacks in America doing much worse in most cases than white people. It has nothing to do with slavery. It has to do with leftist policies that have that have taken those communities and put them down. My aunt has this this wonderful expression that she uses always, and it's uh, it's easy to say, "Not my circus, not my monkeys." So, Will, if if you had the power, if you were a policymaker, how would you solve the crisis with the families that we see today? I mean, again, I think it goes more into what Hungary is doing. I, I think that this this right wing kind of government power, I know people are going to say, oh, Willie, you sound like a socialist. It, it, it's not socialism. It is it is it is things where the government actually could play a role in actually helping people. I don't think that you need that forever. But I think that if we have a culture that is so messed up, you need to be able to give people incentives to have children, because right now the only incentives are to not have children. Feminism has destroyed that for women. Men are too insecure and scared to actually go and talk to women. And you're told that you don't need to actually have a relationship to be a happy person and that children are going to destroy the planet because of climate change. I mean, I met people in my interview. I, I met a guy who said he's getting a vasectomy because of climate change. He's not. That is how bad the, the brainwashing has got in this country. And so I think that you need to institute things within the government to make it so that people actually want to have children. Child tax credits, uh, which I know they kind of have now in America, but they're ruining. I mean, this new administration is not doing a very good job with, with that whatsoever. And you need to fix the education system. The education system is key because if people actually have a culture where they value these things and in being taught in school, you're not taught about LGBT and, 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 and critical race theory. You're actually taught about, hey, here's how a family unit works and here's why these things are good for America. You're going to have a culture that actually wants to do these things. And so I think that within a generation, you could have a new culture of conservative, traditional people who actually want to have families. But if the universities and the public school system continues to indoctrinate students and tell them that they don't need it and feminism continues to promise women happiness without family, then it's not it's not going to happen. It's more than just policy, because this is a bigger cultural problem than just, you know, a policy problem of something to fix. You need to make people want it.
Let's go to guns now. In 2016, according to the United Nations, Japan has the lowest international, excuse me, the lowest intentional homicide rate in the world at 0.3 intentional homicides per 100,000. So why is the left wrong in believing that if guns were banned, the world would be a much safer place? After all, Japan is a much safer place than many parts of America. Well, Japan is in a safe place for Japan's own citizens. Japan has one of the highest suicide, I think the highest suicide rate in the world, right? This is people coming in and saying, oh, I don't need a gun to kill myself. We're going to go to this forest or we're going to jump off a bridge or any of these other ways. So the fact that they use this statistic is like, oh, well, Japan isn't murdering people, but they're killing themselves at rates higher than other people. And they're doing it even without guns, right? The fact that people are not going to do evil things or commit uh, evil acts in the absence of guns, it's just untrue. In the, in the UK, there are more hot burglaries now more than ever, which means that people are getting robbed while they're actually in their homes because they know that people aren't going to defend themselves because they don't have the access to firearms. Acid attacks are up, knife attacks are up. There are actually more murders in the UK, in London, than there were in New York for the first time ever in 2018. To, to say that these countries without guns are just more safe places, just it's just not true. The data just doesn't back them up, right? Because even if violence isn't being committed with guns, it is being committed in some other way, whether that is knife attacks or acid attacks or suicide. Something is happening where people are still committing evil deeds. And so it's it's not a gun problem. It's a culture problem. It's a person problem. And in this country alone, in America, I mean, you have 3 million uses. The CDC did a study, this was under the Obama administration, where you had 3 million uses a year of guns being used in self-defense. That is a truly remarkable thing that you can't say for anywhere else in the world. So how do we encourage gun ownership in the United States? Is it a cultural thing? Is it through the state legislatures? Is it a Supreme Court thing? On what level do we need to be encouraging gun ownership, uh, you know, gun safety courses? How, how does this whole process work in your view? Yeah, I think you just made a good point when you said, because uh, I, I wouldn't tell people that you need to encourage gun ownership because it is a personal choice. And if people want to do it, they, they can go and do it, but not to take it away from anyone else. But gun safety is so important. OK, excuse me. There are so many people out there who own firearms and have no idea how to use them. This is why you have tragedies of of young people shooting themselves. My sister is an elementary school teacher back in Colorado. And one of the kids who she knows at the school actually took one of his father's guns, shot himself in the face and killed himself. It's a horrible tragedy when something like that happens, right? And so because of that, gun safety is most important. That is what we need to be pushing. And and so many of these, these guns that people are using for these mass shootings and for gang violence are illegally purchased guns, okay? Guns, so like concealed carry permit holders commit less crimes with guns than police officers do in this country. They're some of the most behaved people in this country. And so the, the, the fact that people are thinking that Oh, like gun owners, if you own a gun and you you have it yourself, you're going to go around killing people. It's just untrue. Gun safety is the most important thing. And we need to push that on people and, and gun responsibility. So I, I, there's a chapter in here about canceling people. And there's also a chapter in here about free speech. And one of the things you say is that obviously there are some people who should be canceled. And you name Harvey Weinstein as an example. Um, and, and my question is, when is it, quote unquote, or right to cancel someone, is it based off of their words, based off of their actions, a combination of, of both? Obviously, this is something that would be done in very rare circumstances. You know, Harvey Weinstein committed un, untellable uh, atrocities, but what, what's kind of the bar, the standard? And how do you contrast that with 
a, a sort of free speech absolutism. Right. So I think I've actually had kind of a change of heart since I wrote that chapter. And that was about a year ago, I think, when I wrote that chapter. I, it's hard to say that there's a line. Listen, I don't think that anyone should be canceled when it comes to their speech. I think anyone should be allowed to say whatever it is they want to say, no matter how heinous. You know, if they commit crimes and they get quote unquote canceled and they're in jail, they should have the right to attorney, right? They should be able to have the right to defend themselves. They should be able to have freedom of speech to say what they want to say. Everyone deserves that right to be able to do that. But when it comes to canceling people, I mean, my view has changed because the left is so good at canceling people. They want to shame you for everything you do. They want to tell you that you uh, are a pariah and that you are evil and that you could be a potential Nazi or racist or any of these horrible things. And they want to shun you from society. Whereas conservatives have never done that. Conservatives, for the most part, when we see someone on the left, we're like, oh, you know, we don't want to cancel these people. We don't want to. We don't want to be this type of person. And it's like, listen, there are teachers, school grade teachers, right now in America, who are pushing this nonsense sense of LGBT, queer, all this kind of stuff onto children. It is sexual abuse of children. And in my view, these, these teachers need to be fired and they need to be exposed for the things that they are doing. Because what they are doing is abusing children by teaching them about these things and pushing that ideology onto them. So I don't know if you could say that that's like a right wing cancel culture. I don't know. But but it, it is something where people need to be held accountable for their actions. Listen, you can say whatever you want, but don't go and say those things around kids. You do not have the right to go and say those things around kids and influence them into a, a, an ideology that they are not prepared for, or not even ready for. So I think that there is a line for sure, where everyone can say what they want, but you have to be ready to to reap the consequences of what you go out there and say. I believe it was 1963, 1964, famous free speech case, uh, the Jacob Ellis case. Um, the concurring opinion was by Justice Stewart, and the case was about free speech and obscenity. And on the topic of pornography, he said, I know it when I see it. Uh, couldn't we apply the same thing to hateful speech? I, I don't know exactly how to define hateful speech, but I know hateful speech when I see it. Why couldn't we have that standard in this country? Well, you can't have that standard in this country because if someone is in charge who gets to say this is hateful speech, then you have the entire system corrupt, the entire system destroyed. I mean, imagine if Joe Biden got to say what hateful speech was. Right. I would be in jail. I, I mean, uh, Dennis Prager would, would be fined for the things that he says. Right. Because the people on the left are in power. So this is why you have to have this sweeping, all encompassing freedom of speech where you have the right to say these things. Because if someone it doesn't matter, even if we had a conservative, super right wing, hundred seat majority conservative government and they said, all right, we're going to institute hate laws. And for the first 10 years, it was great. And, and, and all these things that the left said were hate speech laws. One day the left will be in power. And then it'll be us on the chopping block when it comes to that. Okay. Free speech is absolute. It is for anyone with any sort of opinion to be able to say what they want to say. If you are a communist Marxist, you can come and say that and, and do what you want. But again, you have consequences for the things you say, just because the consequences aren't legal, just because the government can't come in and say, excuse me, you can't say that. If you're a professor or a teacher, or you're at your work and you start preaching Marxism, you have the right to be fired. Right. That is what happens. You have consequences for your speech. The cancel culture is not is not coming out and saying, oh, people don't have to take consequences for anything they say. Of course, they have to take consequences for what they say and what they do. And people will hold them accountable. I mean, that is our entire world. That is what I do for a job is is talking about things and holding people accountable to the best of my ability. But the government does not have the right to step in and say, you are not allowed to say this. It is not their place because whoever is in charge of the government gets to decide the rules. And we do not want that as a country or a world. To be frank.
Thomas Sowell was a socialist famously before he went to work for the government. Uh, what's your sort of uh, conservative conversion story? Yeah, I mean, I was in college and I was a liberal atheist my entire life, going through university and also high school and everything before that. And it all changed. I was an English major and I was in a sociology class, which was a completely useless class. And they start talking to me about white privilege and how bad capitalism is. And at the time, I had no idea what these things even were. I mean, what is white privilege? Am I really this privileged guy? I went to a high school where I was the minority. It was mostly black and Hispanic kids, and I was the minority. I was oppressing these people now just because I was white. That seemed racist to me. And so there was something that is a switch that just went off in my head. And I said, this is wrong. This is wrong. And then also the girl in 2016 who I was dating uh, turned out to be a huge Hillary Clinton supporter. And she kind of pushed me over the edge, too, because she would talk about things and I would not think that made sense. So then I would go and research and then I found out, wow, her and I really aren't very compatible <laughs> with what I believe about the world now. And so a lot of it changed from there too. And so then eventually I started getting really involved. I got involved with Turning Point USA and started working for them. I got involved with the Republican Party in Colorado. And then I eventually got involved with PragerU and their student program, PragerForce, and joined up with them, made a video for them and sent it to, to PragerU. And they loved it, posted it. And long story short, they offered me a job. And so after two years of school, dropped out uh, University of Colorado, moved to Los Angeles to do what I do now. And we're coming up on four years uh, in three days. Fantastic. You know, speaking of uh, of being an English major, I have to ask you a few book questions. So what books sure. have influenced your beliefs when it comes to politics? So my number, I'll give, I'll give you a few because I, I love reading. I, it's It's People do not take enough time to read. This is just advice. I'm writing a post for my blog and one of the for about things I learned this year. And one of the most important things I tell people to do is to read more, right? Don't watch Netflix. Don't do these useless things. Go and read more. It, it will change your life. So number one, the, the newest book that I really liked was uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's Ship of Fools. For anyone who's looking for a good read that's that's very grounded and calls people out and exposes what's happening in this country, that's a great one. Secondly, my favorite author is Nietzsche. I mean, I love Friedrich Nietzsche. He's my favorite philosopher. And his values when it comes to good versus evil, the herd morality versus the leader versus the ubermensch, I mean, all of these things have influenced me to a degree that uh, I, I can't really say here. The things that he talks about are just, it's things that everybody knows but won't admit. You know, we want to, we want to, to believe that we are all special and that we're all doing something righteous and, and this unique person. But when it comes down to it and you look at most people, most people are sheep and and 0.01% of the people are actually wolves who are uh, uh, setting out from the about this to a great degree and how to be the best person in society and, and a leader. His views and the things he writes about have really changed my life. And, and it goes into politics. You know, it's even though it's not overtly political, Nietzsche's books, you know, The Will to Power, or Beyond Good and Evil, or those books, Zarathustra, it's not overtly political. The values work in a political process or in a faith based prospect uh, as well. Yeah, you begin this book with a, a touch of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche from, I believe it's uh, Der Grossmann, which, which I'm going to butcher some German for the. The audience, poor things. It it starts off, okay. you know, half your nicks from Yen and told and mentioned Gehurt from the gross man who ran in the street. You know, anyway, it's it's a really short uh, story, but it talks about the the death of of God and how we have to create this this new morality and what does that look like. And so, one of the things I really like about Friedrich Nietzsche is that he's asking the right questions. I don't necessarily like all of his conclusions, but he's 
he's seeing an accurate depiction of what the world would look like had there not been a God. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the crux of the whole thing is that, you know, I don't agree. I'm obviously a newly baptized Christian and, and I don't agree obviously with his atheism and, and the lack of morality, but there is no denying when he talks about that, when, when the Christian God dies in the West, that something will have to take its place. That something will have to come and be the new morality for essentially the sheep that I was just talking about before. And that's where leftism comes in. That's where communism comes in. That's where this virtue signaling wokeness, all this kind of stuff comes in. It gives people's lives meaning. And if you don't have one of these religions, then people turn to absolute nihilism. You know, he talks a lot about nihilism within his books, and that is a, a horrible thing uh, on man that that is sweeping the nation, sweeping the world. And as, that if people do not have some sort of meaning in their life, they will they will all turn to that. As Malcolm Muggeridge used to say, the old English journalist, it's one of those isms that ought to be wasms. Um, moving moving on to more fiction books, what sort of fiction books have really changed you, influenced the way you think? I think a lot of times that a fiction book can tell us something about the world that a nonfiction book can't. It's 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 a different sort of read. What what fiction books mm-hmm. have have changed you? Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde is my favorite book of all time. So I, it is beautifully done. The, the values in it, that book actually changed my life. I read it in college. And if you guys aren't familiar with the book, essentially it's this guy, Dorian, he's this beautiful man, and, and, but he sells his soul to the devil, basically. It's kind of like Faustian type of, of, of book. But he finds out that the worldly pleasures that he possesses and that he finds do not give his life any sort of meaning and his soul corrupts and the painting which his soul basically is within the book i I don't want to give away everything but you know the book's 150 years old you should know what's going on by now so i'm not really spoiling (laughs) but at at the end he finds out that essentially you know the painting has destroyed itself because it was his soul and he has been corrupted by all the things all the pleasures and vices that he has put forth in his life because of this and so that book changed my life because i was i was reading at a time where i was putting pleasure and my vices and and these types of things in college ahead of happiness. You know, you put enjoyment over happiness and you end up being a, a lost person. And that is most people in the world. And Oscar Wilde and Nietzsche actually have a lot of similarities with a lot of the things they talk about. And so I think that's why I was so drawn to Nietzsche when I started reading him, because they talk about uh, similar things. Um, and then obviously Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky as well is one of my favorite authors, you know, Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, Tales from the Underground, uh, The Idiot, all all just, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah, I, I really, I'm, I'm working through Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, but it's, it's so long. And I am just past <laughs> no. um, The Rebellion. No, no, I'm just past The Grand Inquisitor. And it, he just says things that are blatantly true out of Mm -hmm. nowhere, you know, truth bombs. And and they just sort of Mm -hmm. hit you in the chest. You're like, wow, that's the thing about Dostoevsky. He was trying like, like in a, in the idiot, like he's trying to basically prove his ideas about Christianity wrong. So he writes fiction books to prove himself wrong. It's a really interesting way that he writes the books and, and what he believes it's, it makes for very compelling reads because he's not just trying to test the audience. He's testing himself which is something that I think a lot of authors, they'll write something, especially fiction, they'll be very self-righteous about it and be like, I know the I know the truth of the world and I'm going to put it in a story and share it to all of you. And it's like Dostoevsky was like, I don't know, but I'm going to write what I believe within a framework of a story to try and prove myself wrong. It's, it's incredible. 
really, really something. Yeah, I think reading is so important. Literacy is so important. Uh, I, I've often thought about putting a sign back here next to all these books. You know, I have these here, so you think I read things. But, uh, uh-huh. you know, all, all kidding aside, I, I think it's a, tremendously important to to read. And I, I'm so glad that that you encourage uh, literacy and reading the way the way that you do. Any closing books that you'd like to recommend to the audience before we go? You know, I just read the book that I was just actually reading was uh, Alex Breitbart's book, Righteous Indignation. I'm not sure if you guys have read that, but for me, that is now, it's my second time reading it. I read it when I was, you know, still getting into politics and stuff and didn't know too much. And I was like, oh, this is good. But I didn't really understand depth of the things he was talking about and how important it was. Just rereading it this this past week, actually, I finished it. Incredible. Incredible. Everyone right now who is a conservative in America should read Righteous Indignation. It is a truly terrific book where he breaks down basically his life, but he uses his life as a means to, to give you a guide to influence other people. It's really, really good. I, I, maybe I'm not selling it too well, <laughs> but, but, but go and get that book. I promise you, you're not going to regret it. And speaking of another book you should get, go out and buy How to Win Friends and Influence Enemies. Will Witt, thank you so much for your time here today. Hey, thanks, man. Appreciate it.